Welcome to Oppenheimer's Let's Talk Future podcast. In this format, we bring you timely and relevant conversations with thought leaders and industry experts. Join us as we explore new ways of thinking about the markets, investing, business, new technologies, and life in general. If you enjoy this podcast, be sure to click on the subscribe button. I'm Jane Ross. I'm a managing director in investment banking. I currently oversee family office services as well as other special situations opportunities. For years, I ran Oppenheimer's high yield sales effort in a department I helped build way back in 2007. Today's episode of our podcast series is entitled Different This Time. We'll take a look at the current market environment and we'll discuss how things are, in fact, different this time from previous market shocks. With the pandemic continuing to exert damage on individuals as well as the economy, with the looming election, I certainly think that this conversation is very well-timed. For our conversation, I'm very pleased to announce we have the perfect guests to discuss these matters. Duran Barnes is a managing director. He's the global head of equities trading and distribution at Oppenheimer and Company. As such, he sits at the nexus of our institutional clients, mutual funds, hedge funds, our retail investors, our trading and distribution infrastructure, In addition, he's involved in directing the distribution of Oppenheimer's research products. So simply put, Duran is very much at the front lines of today's market. He's had a long, illustrious Wall Street career prior to Oppenheimer. Duran was a founding partner at WP Asset Management, and he also spent 14 years at Goldman Sachs. So with all of that, welcome, Duran. Thanks for having me, Jane. I'm uh, really honored to be with you. Great. Well, I think you're the perfect guest for our first episode. Now, I want to start this conversation on a bit of a personal note. Duran, you earned your BA at Columbia University, and a portion of your studies struck me as somewhat unusual for a guy who owns a global trading and distribution franchise on Wall Street. So I thought we'd start a little personally, and maybe you could share a bit about your pre-business path. Yeah, well, Jane, uh, thanks. It is definitely an unorthodox uh, entry into Wall Street. And just even getting to New York, uh, growing up in Los Angeles, where you reside now, right? So it was a big move, uh, really driven by two two factors, My, my music career. Um, where I was a classical pianist and a, I was recruited for the soccer team at Columbia. And both of those were a great fit as Columbia had a joint Juilliard music program with um, Columbia. And so wow. I could, it, so it was, per, it was a perfect fit for, for me at the time. That's awesome. Quite the Renaissance man, really. Sports, okay. arts, business. I love it. Now, uh, the purpose of this podcast is to talk about what's different this time. And I thought we'd start by taking a look at where we are now. Um, We have the benefit of having four tumultuous months in the rearview mirror. Um, So I thought it would be um, helpful if you could talk about how your business at Oppenheimer fared through all of that. Yeah, I mean, look, I think everybody was caught by surprise on this uh, this situation with COVID, and it, it was really sad and tough, but I think what we did really well here at Oppenheimer is we were very malleable. Uh, we worked really closely together. 
uh, management made great decisions to move us into positions of being able to assist our clients uh, all over the world and in, in all businesses. So I thought we moved very quickly um, and effectively. And I'm really proud of all the employees and all of us, the way we moved and positioned ourselves to do business, even though we were all caught off guard with this new era. I mean, we'll, we'll touch on it later, but going remote couldn't have been easy. Yeah, you know, it, it's, it's funny, I think, in talking to the institutional clients or the retail brokers or all of the people around uh, the businesses, people are blown away how well and how resilient people were. Um, it's funny, a client made a joke saying, look, if, if we had sat in a room and had to plan this, we'd have weeks and weeks of meetings. Exactly. We just didn't have that. We just didn't have that. And I think what was great is everyone put their head down, figured out, okay, how can we help? Uh, we really united, which is a big Oppenheimer staple. Uh, we're a tight knit group. Uh, it's a family feel and everybody cares. And I think I'm really proud of how we did that. Um, and we were in position when the volatility struck all our clients to be very helpful. And people leaned on us. They leaned on trusted relationships. So we did our and part. So our, our volumes did not suffer. No, we, we were very fortunate, right? So our clients leaned on us more. Uh, in, in the darkest of times, you're going to lean on people you trust. And, yep. and I feel like we really stepped up nicely. Well, that's really good to hear. Um, Adaptation, it's the key, right, on Wall Street. Um, so again, as we sit here during, we're still on this crazy ride, um, we had the unprecedented drop in the three weeks in March. That was followed by, I thought, a pretty surprising and powerful recovery. Um, and so we and our clients are always tasked with looking at some of the distinguishing factors of, of this period. And you've been very good at, at talking about some of the differentiating factors or three or four designations that had a profound impact over these past few months. So firstly, I guess, could you identify those factors? Yeah, I, look, I think the markets in general, we all know, do not like uncertainty. This was the ultimate uncertainty, okay? When we were struck with a pandemic and how, in fact, the markets were going to react. And as soon as we shut down, what the world would now look like. What did that mean? How long were we going to shut down for? What businesses were going to be crippled immediately? And, and the street and the markets were identifying that as quickly as they could. But there were a lot of cross currents going on. Not only that uncertainty, you had the Saudi-Russia um, oil kind of battle, and the timing of that wasn't great. And some of the most intelligent, smart institutional clients were baffled, uncertain as to why we were down as much as we were. Um, and that was the market saying, we just don't know what's ahead. We don't like it. The difference is twofold, Jane, uh, from years past, from 99 97 long-term, 99, you got the bubble in, in 2001, uh, you've got 08 financial crisis, right? What's different this time? Two things. One, our country is more divided. Um, unfortunately, everyone feels that. Um, and our country is notorious for coming together when things really get difficult. And the, the, the division uh, caused a lot of stress. In addition, you know, when you have all these cross currents going on, You've got the cost division of people, the uncertainty of the markets, and ultimately, we have an election. Uh, we are in an election year. 
with the biggest pandemic that's hit our country in over 100 years. So all those things blended together really made a very tumultuous, volatile last four months. So I think, you know, digesting all that, the markets t- actually pretty did pretty well. I think we'll talk about, and you'll probably want to address, what were the factors that turned it, right? We can address that as well. Absolutely. Well, let, let's talk about some of the technical factors, though, in, in during these four months, some of the things that you have seen that might have been more pronounced this time around or more um, impactful this time around. I, I want to start with high-frequency trading. It's something that's been around for a long time. Uh, you referenced it. I think, you know, um, some had cited it as the reason for the flash crash going back to 2010. Um, you know, our clients are always tasked with managing their accounts, keeping an eye on fund flows to assess future direction and high frequency trading has been talked about as something that could exaggerate those moves or certainly make those move quicker and faster. So could you just touch on that? And, and you know, has that been much of an impact? Do you see that as, you know, something that um, we need to be watching going forward? Yeah, it's, it's a great question, Jane. I think The difference is, remember I mentioned the division that we're feeling. Now the participants are different. So the high frequency component that you mentioned is part of four pronged uh, volumes that we're seeing. And that is also different than what we're accustomed to. It usually was led by bucket one, I would call it. Uh, The pension funds, the mutual funds, and the hedge funds. That's bucket one. Bucket two is the high frequency trading shops, quant shops. They definitely exacerbated the moves early on in the crisis, March, April. We saw those exacerbated moves at the ends of the day. That is high frequency. That is quant trading. Towards the back end of these last four months, we've seen retail and the private wealth bucket and the private investors. And that is a whole nother ballgame that has definitely been around and changed. And we can talk about that in a second. And then bucket four is the unknown Bigfoot coming from overseas, contributing to big futures moves overnight, and that that we just reverse what we're accustomed to, as well as intraday equity trading, very large and very hard to identify because they're not trading in the general normal pathways that you would see. So in historic times, Jane, the retail community would follow all bucket one, two, and four. Difference this time is retail has been leading the latest moves in the last two months. It has been a huge footprint. Why? We have bigger access to social media, and and people are accessing social media, and they're all talking about the stocks they're going to trade that given day. It's it's almost a coordinated uh, effort. It's bizarre because of technology, and that's what's different. Well, let's go back a second. So in high frequency trading, which I wanted to stay on for a second, you said, because some of our listeners might not be that familiar, you said that evidence of that is is end of the day trading when the market's about to close. And you can you just talk a little bit about that and how it affects, you know, then the next expectations for the next day and how that feeds on itself? Right. So March and April, we, we started running into liquidity situations. Interesting, different type of liquidity needs. It wasn't necessarily that there wasn't enough liquidity in ETFs. It wasn't that um, futures were, there wasn't liquidity. There was single stock disparity. You could not get that liquidity. And what happened was 
people were on the sidelines really hurting on the downdraft, figuring out what their next moves were, but the liquidity in single stock was very rare. It was scarce. And so as the days went on, the quantitative funds, they, the high-frequency guys have to chase the performance. And it was abundantly clear directionality when stocks were moving. It really got exacerbated in the last half hour of the day. That's when they kick in and the machines kick in. And when there's a lack of liquidity, there's this air pocket. And these air pockets drive it higher or lower just based on the direction of the day. So that's why we were seeing significant volatility. Right. It's so interesting. And again, I know you're not a policy guy, but, you know, on high frequency trading and we've we've heard that cited as a factor in, in exacerbating the swings. Do you think there's much potential for changes in regulation or do you think that that I think there's always a delay effect, even if we identify those types of issues. And then, of course, you've got a turnover in politics. Right. So those things often give you a delay factor and depending who's you know running the country these things morph and change i think what we have right now is here to stay and people are learning by those rules and studying those rules okay and then another in part of that um discussion you referenced um uh passive or indexing investing, which again, that's another debate that we hear in the marketplace and um, the debate between the benefits of, of pass, passive investing versus active. It always seems to become louder when we're in a market that's that's very changeable and, and volatile. Um, I haven't seen the numbers on relative performance of those funds through June, but you know, you, you'd think that maybe the magnitude of the disruption that we've seen from coronavirus and everything may set up a shift in, in that. Um, you talked about liquidity and in individual stocks. You know, do you think we make a bit of a shift toward active investing where active management of individual companies is more paramount? Yeah, it's a great question, Jane. And I'll tell you, I was beating a drum on this last year because the smart people that I talked to, the institutions, the hedge funds, were articulating um, that fact, which is active management is identifiably better and more helpful in a tumultuous environment. And if you look at performance, you bring up a good point a lot of active managers have been doing well so far first half this year. And if you look at the money flows, a lot of money flows are out of some of the passive instruments into those active managers. They want fundamental bottom, bottoms up work. And last year I was calling for that in a pretty meaningful way. And I said, the first chance that we really will see the active managers, they're going to have to perform right? And so they've done pretty well. Some of the biggest institutions are doing great on terms of the active management side. And I always like a balance uh, between the passive instruments and the active instruments. And wouldn't you want someone who's going to do more deep dive work on single names, um, making those decisions rather than you're in a basket of ETFs, right? So the ETF that world is changing. It's still very large. The, I mean, the passive world is gargantuan. But if you look at what just happened recently, um, out of the high yield ETFs, out of that, you know, your former world, right? But they didn't put it in. They put it into equity ETFs. Mm -hmm. They they need yield still. And right. we should talk about that, Jane. As what did the Fed do that makes this different? What yeah. is different now, and why is it 
acting this way. I think it's important we touch upon that at some point. Well, we, we are definitely going to do so, but I want to circle back to another topic that you brought um, up, which is um, the retail investor. Obviously, very important sector of the marketplace, extremely known to Oppenheimer and company. We have well over a thousand financial advisors and 88 north of 88 billion on assets under management. You know, it seems to me that, I mean, I, I, I've been through many market shocks now in my career and the retail investor has gotten a bit more sophisticated or more schooled in the need to think long-term, try to keep your cool. But again, the ferocity of this decline and then the, the rebound there, I would think that that would have tested that discipline. You know, you mentioned the importance of retail flows. What did you see? Did you see a lot of dumping in, in March from that group? Or I was actually pleasantly surprised to see that people were like, wait a second, I just want to see what happens here. I will say I'm really, really excited about the Oppenheimer retail uh, branches and all the um, brokers. They're doing a phenomenal job. I'm talking to a lot of them on a daily basis. They're looking for any way to help their client base. And I love their intensity to figure that out. Remember, what's changed is the retail investor is leading, not following. Why? They were at home. Um, it doesn't cost them anything to trade commission-wise. They are paying spreads that they don't really fully realize. But in that move that we saw in April, May, and, and part of June, that was heavily retail investors having a lot of confidence, but playing the market on a daily basis. And that was very, very unusual. Um, very, you know, again, remember what I said, and institutions all feel this way. It's been kind of coordinated uh, because of social media. So it's like you start the day, you log on to the different media, social media platforms. You're like, okay, this is where I'm trading today. You're actually being told where everyone else is going. Where before that used to, you never had access to that information. Never had access to that. But it's important that, um, especially our, our, our retail brokers are great. You have to proactively be talking to your clients and saying, okay, what are our goals? What do we want to achieve here? And we at Oppenheimer are going to construct that pathway for you. And I think that's where we shine, right? And that's where we've stepped up. And so our retail business is so large, but we also get good data from other places. And we, we craft that narrative. The institutions want to know about it. The institutions have their opinions regarding it. You have to make, paint that mosaic for customers. They need to understand what we're seeing to help them make educated decisions. Yep, yep. Um, okay, so let's go back to another topic that you mentioned, which is one I find very intriguing because I've never heard of it before, this notion about outsized random flows from overseas. You know, this is important. Obviously, institutional accounts get a lot of data on fund flows, money in and out of asset classes and the like. Um, but um, you know, big flows, I guess, within the day you're talking about that can really move the market. Can you talk about that? How do you monitor it? How do you recognize what's going on? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And so in my 23, 24 years in the business, it's pattern recognition. However, what, what I'd say this time is the overseas flow is really hard to identify. It's coming in different angles. Usually it'd be at like a lot of the bulges. That's not happening at the bulge brackets as much, or maybe it's on their program trading desk. But 
what we're seeing uh, really is head scratching. It's, it's one directional when they come into play and transact in the different assets classes. So whether it be sovereigns or whether it be these hedge funds you haven't heard about before that are very, very large all of a sudden, you're saying to yourself, wait, how are they, where are the assets coming from? How are they getting that big? And how are they influencing the market that much? When they come in, they don't come in every day, but when they come in, it absolutely gives you directionality of what they're thinking and how they're tweaking their portfolio. And, and you know, you just identify those patterns. And then I try and share that with the whole group, as many people at Oppenheimer as possible to say, look, this is the kind of themes we're seeing. These are the types of players we're seeing. Um, and, and you know, you know, obviously we're very, very confidential on what we're allowed to say, but thematically you can pick up different trends. Which yeah. is so important, you know, back in the um, financial crisis in 08, um, leverage was obviously a really important component and um, the impact of leverage, margin calls. I don't think that's been in play quite as much here, but these big massive flows from other places can certainly have the same kind of impacts on the market. Some of the best hedge fund managers, some of the best managers overall had been scratching their head in a pretty meaningful way. Um, where we are now, uh, given the date, right, July 6th, we are kind of like in this range trade and everyone's sitting back, positions are on and waiting for the next move. Yeah, so. yeah. So, okay, so let, let's go back and, and talk about, again, um, sort of the uniqueness of this external shock. You know, you and I have both referenced other periods. We've been through dot-com, 9-11, the systemic crisis in 2008, clearly a global pandemic that's a whole new ballgame for us. You mentioned that the market likes clarity. Um, I think we got an unprecedented response from the Fed, and right. some can argue about that. I'm seeing um, irrational exuberance pop up a lot more in, in articles and opinion pieces, but clearly it seemed to be very effective in, in making the turn for the market. However, the numbers of uh, the infection rate seems to be rising. The response from our government has been um, going in a few different directions. As you noted, it's a presidential election year. So I want to take all of that stuff and kind of force you to look ahead a little bit and not that you're going to be able to prognosticate what we're going to look like in six months, but maybe talk about as you think about the months ahead, uh, what yeah. we prepare for. The biggest difference, I think, is the. you're right, Jane, the Fed really acted uh, aggressively, okay? Early on, they really needed to. And no matter what they did, it wasn't good enough. And they thought each move would trigger a positive reaction. It just wasn't enough. The game changer and the differentiator and why I think we are where we are is when they backstopped the investment grade debt, that's one thing. But when they went down the cap structure and said, we are buying high yield bonds, that changed everything. They're like, they really are willing to do whatever it takes. Now, there's a tremendous amount of money been poured in. Um, the e economy uh, is different than 08. Remember, in 08, it, every business was getting hurt. People were bleeding everywhere. The housing market, et cetera. There are actually parts of the country and part of the economy that's actually doing better. It's kind of bizarre, and it's throwing people off. And then there's parts that obviously leisure, 
airlines, people are scratching there and saying, okay, when, when, when are we going to get back to a place where they can recover? So I think what the Fed did is basically backstop the market, the equity markets, okay? Now, that's what everyone believes, which is giving them a lot of confidence, and the VIX is low, and so people are going to continue to plow into the equity markets until they don't. I actually feel like we've seen it when the market's downdraft, um, when we had pension fund rebalancing shifting into fixed income and we had that one downdraft day, you know, we see that it can get really ugly. I mean, I think that for now, the market will hold itself. We have big factors ahead. Election, COVID, China is a big, big factor. I mean, look, China made a comment this morning. We're really bulled up bull market. Everything is amazing. Their market flew in the morning. We woke up and that, that kind of followed. Why are these things happening? Why are these governments doing that? We don't know. We don't know what the agendas are. Yeah, yeah. And there's not a lot of wiggle room. Right. So I always tell my friends and the institutional clients we talk about, I'd give up the 10% move to the upside, feeling that there's 20 to 30% potential on the down until we get more clarity. Right. So, again, the markets do not like the lack of clarity. Markets showing you, right, Jane, that COVID numbers are going up, but maybe we're treating it better. So maybe the market is just digesting that. Right. There's so many unknowns, but I do think it's going to be very, very volatile yeah. from now until election, no matter yeah. way, any way you slice it. And, and we've seen, you know, the attention paid to individual economic statistics and the payroll numbers. And, you know, we're probably going to spend some time as the second quarter earnings come in and companies make forward statements about what things look like. All of that's going to be very important thing on sure. a pay basis. Um, okay, so another factor that um, I think is decidedly different this time, and, and we touched on it is um, the structure of trading desks. You know, you and I have always worked on trading desks and the guiding thesis there is that proximity to colleagues, the social interaction that comes as a result, that that's fundamental to the sales and trading business, that sitting elbow to elbow with your co-worker creates intensity, it creates motivation, it creates inspiration. You know, I've always felt that to be very true in, in my career. And yet, here we are, we've just come off four months where everybody's working remotely, um, and it's been pretty successful. So how do you think about going forward do you think we go back to where we were? Do you think that we go back to kind of more of a hybrid situation? I, I think, you know, I think it's a little bit of out of, out of our control. Um, yeah. we, we need to still see more data. But I would say this. Um, we just came off our best, most historic quarter in 10 years um, in terms of equities I'm talking about. And, you know, to me, um, it's about process. It's about formula. And it's about relationships right? So put our team on the field anywhere. We're going to figure out a way to make that process formula and relationships come into play. Um, certainly there's so many benefits of being together. Everyone misses each other. Uh, there's a lot of passion and love that, that goes into that. Um, but look, this is, we go where the, the, the world will take us and we'll be prepared to do whatever it is that we're asked to do um, and what people choose to do. Right. So I just I, I focus on keeping people positive, um, upbeat 
and and sticking with our formula and our process and wherever and however it's done, uh, we should be the most effective at that point. Well, I think that is a really good note upon which to end this conversation. Um, this has just really been fantastic. It's been a wide ranging um, conversation about what's gone on. I have the sneaking suspicion that I'm going to ask you to do this again in the not too distant future because I think you're right. We are going to be in for for volatility and surprises going ahead. You know, if I kind of conclude the sentiment and the gist and the content of what you've talked about, it you know kind of gives me an optimistic feeling that ultimately through all of this, our firm. Oppenheimer and Company, as well as the market and our institutions, have all demonstrated pretty res amazing resiliency. And, um, you know, we've certainly been tested. That being said, it sounds like you're, you're saying that we should absolutely keep our seatbelts securely fastened. So uh, I think that's good advice. But um, I really want to thank you, Duran. I think that was just a great, great conversation. Yeah, Jane, I'm, I, again, very honored. I love partnering up with you on this. And look, there are people that are very, very smart, way smarter than anybody at Oppenheimer. We, we have very smart people, but there are people that are smarter that are great partners that want to help us do well, too. So with those partners and with the great greatness of our firm, uh, we feel very lucky, Jane, right? I do feel we are so well equipped across all business units and I love our leadership and I'm, I'm very excited to be part of it. Yes, I would agree. And again, I'm going to take that opportunity to sign off and say that I look forward to our next episode of Let's Talk Future. 